Good afternoon, my friends. Happy Wednesday. The doctor is in the house. And welcome back to another episode of To Your Health with Dr. G. My name is Dr. Mark Gomez, a board-certified internal medicine physician practicing out of Edward Hospital in Naperville and Bolingbrook. Hey, everybody. I'm so excited to continue this theme today of hashtag cancer sucks. And I want you guys to repeat that because it's true. But again, we want to create more awareness. So when we started this uh, last segment last week, breaking down brain tumors, the goal of this whole series is to continue to promote more education, awareness, and then hopefully engagement, engagement amongst our families, our loved ones, our friends, to go see their doctor, to make sure that they're screened appropriately, but to really, at the end of the day, to make sure they make an investment in their health and their well-being. All my clinicians that I've had on the show so far, we all care about your health and your well-being. We want you to have success in your health because as you have success in your health, you're more, more likely to have opportunities for future success in your life. And remember, your health journey is just part of your broader life journey, so continue to keep that perspective. I'm so excited today. We're doing this hashtag Cancer Sucks series. We're on part two today. We're gonna be breaking down ovarian cancer. For those of you that missed last week's show, don't forget to go to my website, www.drmarkgomez.com, and check out our breakdown on brain tumors. Next week, we're gonna come back and conclude this series about talking about pancreatic cancer. But today, our focus is on ovarian cancer. My experts that I have today are fierce. They're at the top of their games. You know, I, only, I always only have fierce guests on this show. But at the end of the day, again, our experts want to be there for you. Again, I want you guys to not take this conversation lightly. I want you guys to really think about it, but also think about how you can apply. Think about the loved ones in your life, uh, those that have been touched by this condition or cancer in general. Again, that's what we call the series hashtag cancer sucks. And the most important thing is to, whatever we talk about today, share it. You know, the best thing about engagement is like with social media and everything, we have so much opportunity to pass on a broader message, a message of engagement and opportunity. But the best thing you can do today is not let this conversation die. We need to continue to keep this conversation going and make it more, more comfortable. We have to be more comfortable talking about the realities of cancer on a day-to-day -day basis. So the best thing you can do is share this episode with your friends, colleagues, loved ones, anyone that you think is, good, is, is touched by cancer or has been touched by cancer, we're going to share this message and engage with the old saying, it takes a village. It certainly does. So I'm excited to have you guys here. We're live in studio at Intellectual Radio. We're also live on Facebook. And again, check me out on my website, www.drmarkgomez.com. We're going to meet my guests in a few moments, but you know what I like to do every week? I like to hit you with a quick disclaimer. The content of To Your Health with Dr. G is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and that the content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Further details can be found at www.toyourhealthwithdrg.com slash disclaimer. So here we are today talking about ovarian cancer and how the show is going to work today. Those of you that have been following us, you guys know the format, but those of you that are new to the program, what I do is I... We basically interview some of our expert clinicians and what they do. But we're going to talk about it. We're going to keep it very simple. We're not going to use a lot of high-level medical words on things. But we want to make it relatable. And also, again, so that's, that if you have any questions, you can further not only watch this episode, but also talk with your clinicians, talk with your primary care doctor, talk with your OBGYN uh, specialist, talk with anybody uh, that, that is passionate about these topics. Again, we're here to serve you as clinicians to make sure that as a community we do great with our health. So what I want to do today is 
I want to introduce my guests. Uh, first of all, joining me in studio, I want to introduce a great friend of mine. I've known her for a long time. We're just talking about it off air, like, well, I've known each other for a long time, but she's a great friend and colleague of mine. Uh, she's seen a ton of my patients over the years, and I'm just so glad that you're on the show today, just just, just taking time in your schedule and, and helping me and my wife, Tiffany, really uh, promote a broader mission of serving uh, and making sure that people have equity when it comes to their health and their well-being. So I want to introduce my first guest, joining me live in studio, Kimberly Rohan. I have to read her credentials because her credentials are deep. Uh, Kimberly Rohan is a board-certified advanced nurse practitioner. She's with Edward Hematology Oncology Group. She's with Edward Elmer's Health. Check her out at www.eehealth.org. Kim, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Hey, it's so glad to have you too. Hey, let's do this. Let's start this way. Why don't you tell us about where you did your training um, and really what is like the day-to-day -day involved for you and then what is this theme of ovarian cancer? How does it how does it pertain to you on a daily basis or what does it mean to you? Sure. Um, so I did my undergraduate at Rush. I uh, got my bachelor's degree from Rush. Uh, worked about a year and then went back and got my master's. Um, there weren't nurse practitioners when I went back for my uh, master's, so I came out as a clinical nurse specialist. And I worked um, in various roles at Edward, but with the Cancer Center for the last 24 years, Dr. Hantel and the team at Edward. Um, and then I decided about 10 years ago to go back and get my postmaster's MP from St. Francis. So um, I've been with the Cancer Center caring for cancer patients for 35 years, or almost 35 years. Um, so I've seen great strides in um, how we're managing patients, but I feel my job has always been to help patients on their journey, whatever that journey may be. And especially with ovarian cancer patients, it's a challenging uh, cancer, um, affects you know women in very emotional um, ways, also some very physical things that can occur with that. Um, and their sexuality. So um, a lot of what I do with those patients is providing emotional support and helping them manage the side effects or managing um, the sequelae of whatever needs to be done. So I'm really happy to be here with you today to talk about this. Well, thank you, Kim. Thank you very much. It's going to be great talking about this more. I want to introduce my next guest. He's joining us live on the phone. Uh, I've known him over the last year or so um, when we worked together at Edward Hospital. So I, I knew I had to reach out to him when I came with this idea for this doing this hashtag Cancer Sucks series. I knew he was a right fit to really spread a message of engagement and opportunity and certainly what he sees from a clinical perspective. So joining me on the phone, I want to introduce my, my friend and colleague, Dr. Basil Imam. He's a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist with Edward Medical Group. He's part of Edward Elmer's Health. Check him out, www.eehealth.org. Dr. Imam, welcome to the show. Hey, Mark, thank you for having me. Hey, you bet. Thanks, my friend, for taking time out of your schedule and helping us support this mission. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where did you do your medical school? Where did you do your, your residency training? And really, what does this theme of ovarian cancer really mean to you today? Absolutely. Uh, I went to medical school at University of Arizona uh, in Phoenix, and I actually finished my residency training in Phoenix as well in St. Joseph's Hospital and uh, the county hospital as well, and ended up doing an extra year of uh, pediatric and adolescent gynecology as well for my fellowship, and then decided to move to this side of the continent and joined Edward about a year ago, and it's been, uh, it's been wonderful so far. Um, obviously, as, you know, from if, if you can tell from my training in women's health in general, from 
uh, young age to uh, to old age is kind of an area of uh, interest of mine, of course, and uh, I take uh, I take it with pride as well. I, I love educating the patients, and I, I love kind of walking them through uh, whatever medical issues they are having when they when they end up uh, coming to see me. Um, and um, you know, ovarian cancer is obviously one of those things that. Um, hit women pretty hard just being uh, the uh, basically the second most common type of gynecologic cancer so uh, um, it, it's definitely one of the uh, one of the subjects that I have interest in. Excellent thank you Dr. Imam and not only to piggyback on what, on what Dr. Imam just said certainly uh, <clears throat> ovarian cancer is the second most common uh, gynecologic cancer behind uterine cancer but it actually is the most common the leading cause of gynecologic cancer-related deaths. And so this is why we're right. trying to have this kind of conversation. So I want to kind of set the tone like this. Um, usually each week on the show, you can, hey, you guys just met my awesome panel. They are awesome. So each week on the show, of course, we break down some questions. And so when somebody comes into the office, we call it the chief complaint. And that's really when somebody uh, uh, presents to their clinician and, and is there for a specific reason. So our chief complaint today slash question of the hour is this. What causes ovarian cancer to develop? How can the risk be minimized? And what treatment options are available? So I'm gonna ask this question to Kim. So Kim, can you give us a little more overview, just kind of general um, uh, classification about ovarian cancer? What, I mean, a lot of people have heard of it, but what is ovarian cancer? We can even take it back a little more broadly. What is cancer in general? How does it start? And, and then how does it develop and be considered around ovarian cancer too? So cancer, cancer is really um, a mutated cell. So a normal cell that I'd like to, uh, how I explain it to patients is um, our goods, our cells in our body are like good teenagers. They follow rules. Cancer center, cancer cells are like teenagers gone amok. They stop following the rules. They they beat to their own drum, um, and so they found a way to get around the immune our immune system to go ahead and set up shop um, and in ovarian cancer that happens in the ovaries um, so I, like i said i kind of it's teenagers that have kind of gone amok and now we have to figure out how we're going to deal with them um, how are we going to deal with that teenager um, how are we going to discipline it how are we going to get it back into into the being a good kid again. So um, there's obviously we'll talk about this as we go on, various treatments, various ways that we can do that. Um, but once again, it's just a cell that has decided that it doesn't want to follow rules anymore. Very well, very well put. And I'm going to start using that analogy. I love that teenager analogy. But but again, we're talking about making things very relatable to people so they understand what they're getting to. Because I believe, I believe and I might be wrong, but, but our lifetime risk for just cancer in general in this population, I believe it's about 38%, at least some of the statistics I've seen from the CDC. Uh, cardiovascular disease is still the number one killer in this country, but cancer is number two, and it's been number two for quite some time. Uh, so, but we have to have these kind of conversations talking about the reality that, that a significant chunk of the population will at some point uh, experience some form of cancer in their lifetime. So let me ask this, Dr. Imam, <clears throat> Uh, you know, from a from a OBGYN perspective, from what you do, why should the public care about this diagnosis? You know, we, we talk a lot about breast cancer, we talk about lung cancer. I, I feel like ovarian cancer is not talked about as much, but we need to have these kind of conversations. So, why 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 should the public care about this diagnosis? Well, as you mentioned, Mark, uh, it, it is despite being only the, the second most common gynecologic cancer, but it is it does account to the. Uh, most deaf in women in relationship to 
to cancer and as well as we've done in all the other gynecologic cancers as far as prevention and uh, early detection we have so far we haven't we haven't reached that stage for ovarian cancer it's one of those uh, diagnoses that um, you know takes us back and then uh, we, we always hope that we just have an early detection uh, but it doesn't always work that way unfortunately very well, very well put. You know, one of the things that people always say when I, you know, one of the things I talk about as a primary care physician is that, hey, you know, <clears throat> when it comes to cancer in general, and we'll get back to ovarian cancer in a moment, when it comes to cancer in general, I would say, hey, you know, we, we, we want people to, to do things that they can control. We talk about modifiable uh, kind of risks, things that you control over, you know, putting down the cigarettes, putting down the drinking, you know, that kind of thing, controlling weight because there's a, a lot of uh, cancer related to obesity or at least have a link with that, but there's some things that we can't control. Um, uh, and so I want to ask this question to Kim, are there other kind of modifiable or non-modifiable risks that are out there in cancer in general that maybe we can hone in on this particular diagnosis? Well, in general, cancer is a diagnosis of you know that happens later in life it's rare cancers are much rarer in younger the younger population so in general as we age our risk for developing any kind of cancer increases um, particularly ovarian cancer tends to be most common in the sixth decade of life or when people are in, women are in their 60s um, there's some and that's questionable whether we call these modifiable risk factors or not you know getting pregnant later in life carries a higher risk for ovarian cancer, not breastfeeding carries a higher risk. Um, using hormone replacement therapy carries a higher risk. So are some of those things modifiable? You could, you could argue that not having a child before 25 or 27, 28 or later in life, that may or may not be modifiable based on when you meet yeah. the right person Absolutely. or how that goes, right? So I think some of these things are, we know that smoking, you know, is also a risk factor. So once again, um, you know, I talked about how important um, getting people to be smoke-free is. Um, so I think there are some modifiable risk factors, but unfortunately, once again, it's obviously a female cancer. It's obviously you can't control your age, right? And so the two biggest risk risk factors aren't anything that we can really modify. Well, thank you for bringing that down. I would say like, I just feel like mother nature, and that's just maybe in general is the human experience. You know, we um, eventually we get aged out or, or it's almost like the mother nature's aging us out of the population. But yes, as we get older, so many more things come in. And we've talked about that kind of stuff in the show before on various other topics, uh, just what well, just the signs of times so when we go there. But this is why we need to have these kind of conversations in general to create more awareness and hopefully that helps move the needles or at least buys us more time. Let me ask you this question, Dr. Imam. Uh, have you seen from your perspective, uh, you know, does, does ovarian cancer, does it discriminate when you think about like, uh, you know, we, yes, Kim just mentioned about a lot of certainly more older women, but, but are there cases in younger women? Does it also matter? Let me throw you the second question too. Um, younger women, but also what about women that uh, are from different socioeconomic backgrounds or, or ethnic backgrounds? Are you seeing any of that kind of differences at all? Well, in general, as far as ethnic background, it does seem to hit uh, Caucasian women more than any other race. Uh, however, in low socioeconomic status, you would, could imagine that uh, late detection is, is much more prevalent in low socioeconomic status uh, women, and which obviously complicates the treatment process and the prognosis. Uh, and you know, Kim is right. You really you can't really control your the the age and the family history, but 
Um, there are some type of cancers that are seen in uh, young teenagers, like germ cell cancers. Um, most of them luckily are benign. However, about 2% of them can translate to a uh, malignancy. Okay, well, thank you for giving us some more information. You know, one of the things as I was preparing for the show, and it's interesting, one of the great things for me as a primary care physician and doing the show every week is I get to, get to relearn about a different topic. Uh, and I think that's one of the bees of, well, at least when I got into primary care, because I can know a lot about a lot of, no, no, I look, sorry, I said it wrong, know a little about everything versus a lot about one thing. Uh, but but just to have these kind of conversations, you know, we try to take, to take these conversations seriously as we prepare for these shows because we want you as the public out there. What we do, it's for you, to, for your education, for your awareness, and then for you to continue to have that conversation with your experts. You know, we always talk about getting the right information from the right sources. You know, we, what we want to do here is continue to build trust and deliver truth when it comes to your health care. So let me ask this question. I'm going to come back at you real quick, Dr. Imam. Um, you know, we're talking about why right now, why should we care about this? Are there things in general that you're aware of, and I'll throw this question to Kim, same question after, after your response. Are there any general um, initiatives that are out there to promote uh, a more awareness about ovarian cancer that you're aware of? Not locally, but there's always, you know, the, oh, the cancer societies always try to promote more uh, awareness. For me as a practitioner and as a, as a doctor, a gynecologist, I always try to, like I mentioned before, educate my patients. There's always that, that talk about pap smears, pap smears, and how well we've done with cervical cancers. And, you know, a common question I get from patients, well, if I don't need a pap smear, why do I need to see you every year? And this is where I go into the, you know, full education mode and, and explain all the other uh, risks that could be involved, including ovarian cancers and uh, how a, uh, a visit to the gynecologist could be one of, so far, one of the best prevention that we have is, or at least the way to detect anything unusual early using the gynecological exam. Excellent. So that's kind of the initiative I take, uh, because so far, you know, what is known about the risk factors of, of ovarian cancer has not really translated into practical ways uh, to prevent cancer. Thank you very much. Kim, let me follow up with you with that same question. Uh, are you aware of any initiatives right now that are going on uh, to promote this? You know, I contrast this to, like, obviously the marches that we have, a lot of them for breast cancer and other kind of cancers that have much more of a bigger initiative, much more in the common vernacular. But are we seeing any ongoing initiatives about ovarian cancer? There are. There is a, a ovarian cancer coalition. Um, it's What you have to realize is the uh, breast has gone so far above men because number one it's women and it's a lot of women right good and bad with the ovarian is the the n or the number of women isn't as huge um i think the majority of women that are diagnosed with ovarian cancer they're they get on this whole thing well why aren't we screening women with ca125s why aren't we screening better and i think dr Rob brought up i think one of the good things maybe is you know um doing uh, pap smears less frequently, but once again, I think that hurt us a little bit when it came to screening for ovarian cancer because now women aren't coming in necessarily every year for that pelvic exam. And we know that, that that's the one and only thing that we found right now that potentially positively impacts finding ovarian cancers at an earlier stage. Um, so I think once again, I think that that's where we kind of have that struggle. So I think there's pockets of women that get together. 
um, and try to have a voice with legislation or try to have a voice with researchers, but once again, it's not as organized as, let's say, the breast cancer community. Very well, thank you. Dr. Imam, you know, we're talking about kind of promoting awareness and everything. Now, for our patients that are out there, or sorry, our patients, our listeners, our viewers, whoever you want to call it, those people that are out there that are listening to us right now, um, are there any kind of classic signs or symptoms that someone may have if if she presents with ovarian cancer? Yeah, the, well, yes and no. The symptoms are very nonspecific, so my advice is always talk to your doctor if you feel anything uh, you know, out of the norm. Basically, the common ones for that are related to uh, ovarian cancer is early satiety. Like, let's say you just, you know, you're getting full a lot quicker than you used to, and, and abdominal pelvic pain that is lasting more than usual, like I would say two to three weeks, um, bloating sensation, any change really in uh, in urination, vaginal bleeding also could, you know, some, some types of ovarian cancers can present as vaginal bleeding, although not all of them. Um, so I, I always say, you know, if, if anything's unusual, any of these symptoms that are, albeit not very specific, but last for more than two to three weeks, then a visit to the doctor is definitely warranted. And then, you know, from then on, we'll take it and we'll perform a, an exam if anything is, suspicious there's always imaging modalities that we could use to help us hey Anna let me piggyback on that one is there anything uh, Dr. Imam when it comes to when you're doing your exam that's something that might tip you off that someone may have this diagnosis yeah uh, if I if I find any uh, masses on the exam around the next hour around the ovaries basically uh, then that usually triggers me to uh, order an ultrasound, uh, depending on the age and the and the views on the ultrasound, I can also uh, uh, order some blood tests uh, and tumor markers uh, markers that Kim alluded to. I mean, they're the best we have so far, but they're definitely not. You know, the combination of both have not been approved yet to be a uh, uh, a, a screening test for women who are at a high risk of ovarian cancer. So, but so definitely, if, if a new patient, you know, comes up with a problem, then that's kind of a good first step. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Mom. Let me ask this question to Kim, because I get this quite a bit as a, as a primary care physician. Uh, somebody may have a family history of ovarian cancer, and uh, the patient will come in and say, hey, Dr. G, uh, I got a family history. We're, and we always, I always like to ask about family history, but a new family history, for example. And they'll say, hey, um, there's a test that, uh, that, that I'm told that I need to get from you called a CA-125. Um, and uh, they always say, can you order it for me? Uh, or they'll say, or I'll get that thing where, hey, I got a family history of ovarian cancer. Uh, can you just scream me? Can you just order me a public ultrasound? Um, how do you kind of approach that kind of thing? I mean, should we be, should people be asking for that stuff right from the get-go? I know Dr. Mom basically said, that, said, I'm putting words in your mouth, but I think I know where you're at, my friend, but really we shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff because there's no guidelines really to, to, to back that up. But, how do you have that kind of conversation if somebody comes in and says, uh, you know, I want this, this, and this, and this because of my cancer risk? Well, and we get, we get that all the time, right? So, first of all, right. if anybody has a family history, we have genetic counselors that I refer patients to the genetic counselors because they're... There can be certain mutations, BRCA uh, mutations, that may put a patient at higher risk or a person or a woman at higher risk for breast or ovarian cancer, right? 
Um, but even with knowing that somebody may have that mutation, there have not, just as Dr. Mom pointed out, we still don't know how the best way to screen those people and how often do we screen them. I could, and this is how I explain it to patients, I could draw a CA125 on you today and it'd be fine, and six months from now you could have an ovarian tumor. How often do we do that? We don't know. And we haven't been able to prove that doing it on an annual basis or every six months or whatever changes the outcome for patients. And I know that's really hard and frustrating because I think women sit there and go, well, but men get, you know, their PSAs and the men get their prostate. How come? We haven't proven, and even in prostate, we haven't totally proven that PSA. Because a CA-125 can be elevated in benign processes as well. So it's it's a not a specific test. It's it's not specific to ovarian cancer. It can be elevated in a lot of other um, conditions. So just trying to educate them. And I think the biggest thing is empowering women to speak up. Um, oftentimes, when you know your body, and if something doesn't feel right, or you feel something's not like it's supposed to be, just keep after the physician to be, until you can until they've worked it up or you feel like you know you've gotten some resolution to it. A lot of these symptoms can be associated with IBS. Um, they can be um, associated with perimenopause or menopausal symptoms. So teasing that out, I think, is often very difficult. And that's where working with your provider, and I think it's important to have a relationship with the provider that you've seen multiple times that you can have this dialogue with and that knows you, knows your body just as, well, not as well as yourself, but you know, almost as well as yourself. Yeah, I think that's perfect because I always tell people, and I like how you both are really saying this, you know, we, we as clinicians would rather have people come in and see us and then give them reassurance uh, versus delaying that a visit which can potentially delay their treatment if something truly is found. The old saying, there's no such thing as crying wolf uh, when it comes to your health. Uh, and even if people sometimes say, I'm a self-imposed hypochondriac. Uh, but, but we want people to get in. So I like how both of you guys are saying, you know, something's been going on for a few weeks, uh, and at that point you know your body, something feels right, feels something feels off, it's best to be seen. And whether you come in and see your primary care physician like me, or, you, or for women out there, if you see your OBGYN uh, physician like Dr. Imam, you know, we want to be there to, re to reassure you. Uh, we hope not to have you have to go see Kim uh, from an oncology standpoint, but, but Kim is there to help you out if we need to go that route. But we always say start with your primary care physician, start with your, your OBGYN physician, and, and have that conversation. So let me ask this question to Dr. Imam. So, um, Dr. Imam, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about, like, risks, um, you know, about cancer in general, what we should be doing, which obviously I always say, you know, we should be moving more, eating better, stressing less, putting down cigarettes, all that kind of jazz, you know, but have they really seen anything? You know, I was doing some prep for this, and one of the things that I found, and I wanted to kind of ask you both, is yeah. uh, an interesting thing that, that um, it, was, it was here, and I'm going to read it so I don't mis, 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 um, mispronounce this. Uh, so... If somebody uses birth control, uh, and I read this kind of fact, and this is where we want to say, like, it does it decrease or increase risk, but say somebody's using birth control. Um, uh, from what I found, at least through the American Board of Internal Medicine, or to put that disclaimer there, is that um, use of birth control uh, for 15 years or more decreases risk of ovarian cancer by 50%. 
uh, with a protective effect lasting 30 years after stopping birth control uh, use. But even shorter results of birth control use, shorter durations, have resulted in some protection. Is that is that kind of a true statement? Yeah, that's correct. We, uh, they've seen some uh, uh, protective uh, or a reduction in, in cancer, uh, ovarian cancer, in people who've used oral contraceptive pills for five to ten years. I mean, 15 years seems like a lot, but I, I think the, the, our data, the data that I've seen is, is ten years as well. So, uh, it, it, so obviously it's not you know, a good reason to start oral contraceptive pills just for that reason, but it's, it's a, um, it gives the patient some reassurance who, who are using it for birth control um, management to, uh, to know that maybe she's reducing her risk of ovarian cancer in the, in, the, in the future. Other things that I also, I don't know, forgot to mention before, but since we're talking about risk reduction, uh, some type of ovarian cancer is, is believed to... Uh, start in the cell lining of the fallopian tubes itself. So when a woman comes in and saying, I don't want any more babies, I'm done, my, my family is complete, and wants surgical treatment, then I've, I've, I've started counseling them, instead of just cutting a piece of their uh, fallopian tube to remove them entirely, and it's, you know, it's called a prophylactic self-injectomy, so removing the, the fallopian tubes both in entirety, and that has been shown to reduce the uh, risk of ovarian cancer as well. Wow, that's awesome, you know, um, and I'm glad that you're able to have those kind of frank conversations with people. You know, uh, a lot of times when you think about um, creating more awareness, we have to take action and say somebody does have risk, you want to take action. Uh, so let me ask this question for, um, for Kim. You know, Dr. Imam just mentioned one of the surgical treatments, and I'll get back to that in a second. Hold that thought, Dr. Imam. From a non-surgical standpoint, like, how do you approach somebody in general about treatment options with this diagnosis? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think... The, I've been doing this 35 years, and, you know, for 35 years, we've, you know, always had chemotherapy. Um, obviously, the first step is to get, if, we, if patients can have surgery, want to do surgery. Um, if they can't get it all, at least the bulking, the majority of that. And then that's followed with chemotherapy. We, um, over the last 10 years or so, we've started to um, have available to us targeted therapies for certain subtypes of ovarian cancer. And, and now we're even looking at what's the role of immunotherapy in the treatment of ovarian cancer. So I, uh, I like the analogy, you know, chemotherapy is the bulldozer. It just kind of plows through it all. And then targeted therapies are more you know, the share crop where you're, you're dealing with just certain plants, and then you have your immunotherapy where you're really taking your own immune system and working toward um, getting those teenagers, uh, you know, that I spoke about earlier, the teenagers back in line. Um, so there is the, the exciting thing about oncology is when I started 35 years ago, we'd maybe have one or two new treatments every couple months. Now it's almost every week, almost a new indication for a drug every day. So um, I think we're learning more and more that not all ovarian cancers are the same. And we're starting to understand the biology of what turns your cancer, what's making your teenager be bad versus this person's teenager be bad, and trying to become more pre precision medicine, personalized medicine where we're not treating everybody the same, but looking at the biology of their cancer and ensuring that we're, we're attacking this 
as best we can. Excellent. Dr. Iman, what are some of the surgical approaches you mentioned a little bit before, certainly with a you know, prophylactic uh, um, subinjectomy, uh, taking out the fallopian tubes. But what other, uh, other options are out there? So say somebody has a diagnosis and, and you know, you got to go from there. But how do you kind of advise your patients on what their surgical options are? Well, yeah, Kim uh, alluded to the fact that, you know, the surgical, the bulking, uh, and, and usually the treatment really is based on staging, uh, imaging, and how, how it looks on imaging, really. I, I usually s send them to um, specialists, cancer specialists, and then they have a conversation. But the conversation goes depending on the size of the tumor, um, how aggressive it looks on, again, on imaging. Uh, and it's a combination of either surgical um, followed by chemo or radiation or some of those targeted uh, therapies that Kim has uh, talked about. Or sometimes, you know, they start with chemo and then uh, reduce the size of the, um, the tumor a little bit, just enough to make the patient uh, ready for surgery and then go ahead and do the major debulking process and then follow it up with, with some more therapy afterwards as well until remission. All right, thank you. So, you know, here we are. We're, we're tuning in here. You guys are joining us here live on Facebook. We're here at intellectualradio.com. Uh, on, on their site as well as in live in the studio, uh, talking about ovarian cancer, hashtag cancer sucks uh, series. Again, having this great conversation about just what is ovarian cancer, how we promote more awareness, how we promote engagement, but also now talking about treatment strategies, options that are out there. And I love how Kim just said a few moments ago that no two treatments are the same. You really have to individualize your approach. And it's great that, that, that medicine has evolved from a one-size-fits-all to a very individualized, customized approach. Because I think from anybody that's dealing with this diagnosis of ovarian cancer or cancer in general, want to know what's their plan for them. Uh, because it's such a scary moment and a very emotional moment. And now glad we're able to have you from your end. You have so many more tools in your, on your tool belt. And from Dr. Imam, from a surgical standpoint, uh, again, again, more better techniques out there to help people continue to, to overcome this, this challenging diagnosis. But let me ask you guys this. I'm going to paint this picture. Uh, a lot of times to get more awareness about a topic, we have to see something. Something has to happen in the public sphere. Uh, you know, one of the most famous people to have had ovarian cancer was former Saturday Night Live star Gilda Radner, but also other people, other famous people have had ovarian cancer or have diagnosed or succumbed to their disease. Um, um, Coretta Scott King, the wife of, of uh, Martin Luther King, the late Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Olympic medalist uh, Shannon Miller. Uh, so, but but a lot of times it takes that kind of a, you know, I hate to say it, but, but like, why does it have to get to the point that a celebrity has to get something first before we may take more action? So I'm gonna ask that question, Dr. Imam, first. Why do we why why do we have to wait for somebody to do it to take some of the initiative? I feel like we're still climbing a battle, an uphill battle, but we're trying to hopefully get better at it. Mark, sorry, you, yeah. you couldn't cut off sorry, I'll, at the end. I'll say, I'll say the question again. Why does it take sometimes, it takes like for a celebrity to come come down with a diagnosis before before we get a big community engagement on the topic? You know, why are we seeing that in, 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 in people in general? It's more of just a philosophical question. Why do, what do you think we need to do better to not wait for our celebrity uh, crush to get something to take definitive action. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it, it just all boils down to like uh, like Kim was saying, knowing your body and then trying to just just be in contact with your with your physician uh, and never it's never 
you know, a, a quote-unquote stupid question to go and ask the physician. Uh, and I, I feel like it's just the society as a whole just kind of t turns its attention when uh, someone, like you said, someone famous gets affected by a disease. Uh, and it's just the way we've... Uh, what things have become, especially down to social media, it's, it's good and bad. It's not. I'm not. I'm not trying to say it's a negative connotation to that. Sometimes it actually works in our favor as, as physicians and, and providers. Uh, when someone uh, so prominent gets affected this way, then it just brings more attention to the topic. It sometimes brings more funding as well. Uh, so I, I mean, I, I try to take it as a positive thing uh, and and just you know try to do we do our part and educate. Uh, having an opportunistic up, uh, approach to uh, educating the, the woman and, and the uh, patients in general. Thank you. Kim, your response? Uh, anything on this topic? Yeah, I think, you know, in general, people still associate cancer with death. They don't, you know, they don't know all the treatments that are available or the importance of early detection or, uh, or those things. Um, so I think, you know, we've all... We've always offered um, community events on a various cancer topic, and they're not always well attended because I think people, until it affects them personally or through a family member or someone famous, then they start going out and trying to get more information on it. So I think it, and I'm sad for these people, but I do think it does bring awareness. And like Dr. Mom said, it brings funding. You know, look at the V Foundation that raised all this money for research, or the Gildo House, you know, for support for for women with cancer. So I think, um, in some respects, it's an awareness, but it also increases funding. Um, you know, look at as your topic last week, brain tumor and Biden's son. Yeah. All of a sudden now the vice president had this cancer coalition of, of prominent um, oncologists, nurse practitioners, nurses in oncology together to say, okay, how can we battle this? So it's sometimes the... Uh, the match that needs to be lit to get to get people moving. Yeah, that's and I love how you that's said a good match. Point. Please go, go uh, ahead. There's definitely a state of denial in general, and and it's it's more prominent in some uh, uh, cultures than others to the point where they don't even want to say the c word. You know, they call it the c word. So uh, <laughs> that's a really good point that Kim brought up. That there's definitely some state of denial, and until it hits you or hits someone in your family. Um, you know, you just don't really pay attention to it, and, um, and and like I said, because 20 years ago, like she was mentioning as well, 20 years ago, I mean, it was not one size fits all. But what they don't understand is we've, we've come a long way in treatment for all kinds of cancers. That's wonderful. And again, this is why we're having this kind of discussion. That's I love how we're here today. Let me ask you guys this question. So, say um, you know somebody comes into you and sees you both in your offices. I'll ask this question to Kim first. Um, are there certain questions, say they get this diagnosis, or suspicious of this diagnosis of ovarian question, uh, I'm sorry, ovarian cancer, is there, are there any questions that you, that you, that you wish patients would ask you, or vice versa, that you want to make sure that they understand as you move forward in this diagnosis? I always kind of, I always want to talk about, like, we don't want to have missed opportunities, mm -hmm. and going through this diagnosis can be very challenging for people, but so are there, so here's a question, are there questions that you wish people would ask you, mm -hmm. or are there things that you want to say to people um, uh, moving forward about this diagnosis? I think the challenging thing is people usually want to know statistics, 
and I we shy away from statistics, right? Because it's a bell curve. Some people are going to do better, some are going to do worse. And sitting here today, you know, we do we have learned that some some subsets of ovarian cancer patients do better than others, right? Um, so I think that's one piece. Number two, I think that for me as the nurse practitioner helping patients, it's really knowing what their supports are, what are their goals, what's important to them, right? Um, is it continuing to work, so we need to work around that, or is it I have a vacation, a very important vacation, or family ruin, or a birth, or whatever, is understanding the psychosocial issues for each individual patient because the treatment once it's established the treatment's the treatment right it's all the rest of it that i think that makes each patient very individual and how do we help that patient to the greatest degree and that's understanding them personally um, and like i said what their goals are what kind of supports do they have um, what is their what is their background? Have they ever had anybody with cancer? Because oftentimes a patient will come in and say, "Well, my friend had chemo, and it was, and all these things happened." And I'm like, "Well, not with this treatment." So it's kind of understanding, getting their basic understanding of what they have, what their expectations are of treatment, and kind of setting the stage for them. Excellent, thank you, Dr. Mama. There's some common questions that you hope that people ask you or gaps uh, or gaps where you can actually fill in and say hey I think it's really important you maybe need to bring it up to me uh, as a physician but I can bring this up to you so you can know more information yeah I think the family structure is very very important like what kind of support system does the patient have I you know it's always nice when they also ask you what kind of resources available to them like who can they talk to anybody else with the same with a similar uh, uh, diagnosis and this is where, where you can refer them of course to uh, those societies uh, and and then this uh, this helps me and helps helps us all individualize as much as possible the treatment plan and and, and the steps forward and I think it just sets sets a good precedent to them and and uh, give them an idea of how things might or may or may not go um, despite it being it's never going to be a set schedule for them or a, or a set uh, approach, but at least, uh, you know, the, they know what they're getting themselves into initially, at least. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm a big believer in, certainly in my, in my practice, uh, when we're having some people, to at least start the conversation if, if I'm ordering a scan that might suggest this conversation, this diagnosis, certainly I bring them back into the office. And I'm more of that hands-on kind of physician where I want to talk to somebody face-to-face -face and then outline the next plan, get them over to to, uh, to Kim, for example, for further treatment for regardless of whatever kind of uh, potential cancer diagnosis they have. Uh, but I want to make sure that patients, um, that everyone has like the right questions to ask. So I'll spend that time to say, hey, it's okay, bring your family member, your friend, let's, let's make sure we clear the air. I want to make sure that, you know, this is a very serious diagnosis for a lot of people. And as Kim was saying earlier, a lot of times we don't talk about it because the C word or cancer, because we can, we can all comfortably say it, uh, you know, cancer is equated with death. Mm -hmm. And so, but having somebody there to, to to be with you, to uh, accompany you, and then for us as clinicians to show empath empathy is, is a great thing to helping people move forward uh, in their hopes and goals of battling this condition. I think, Mark, the biggest thing is to help people to stay away from Dr. Google. Yes, please. Because they're going to Google, <laughs> and 
uh, you know, nobody polices the internet, so there's a lot of stuff out there that may or may not pertain to that patient. So directing them to reputable websites such as the American Cancer Society, and what I love about the American Cancer Society's website is they can pull up on ovarian cancer and it gives them a list of questions you might want to make sure you ask your doctor. So it kind of gives them that kind of template for what that conversation should look like when they come to see us. So I, I think the hardest thing is for the patient that comes in and they've Googled and they, their brain's all over the place because A, there's so much information and what information really pertains to them or not. So the good and bad about you know instant um, information today is that nobody polices that and make sure what's out there is good information. Well, th well, thank you for saying that because that segues right into my myths versus facts. Thank you, Kim. Uh, no, but it's true. But we want people to have the right information. And so, and so we were, again, we all, we all, as people, of course, as humans, we, we are risk averse. We, we, we want to make sure our health is good. We don't want to put ourselves in risky situations. So it's important to have those conversations about the right things out there, the right questions to ask. So Kim just segued me perfectly into myths versus facts. Each week on the show, what we do is we break it down. I'll have a statement. And um, I guess panelists will say either myth or fact, but this is again about setting the record straight when it comes to your health. And we're talking about ovarian cancer. So there's a lot of myths out there uh, and, and we want to set the truth or tell the truth better yet and making sure that people have the right information moving forward. So here's a statement. I got first one for Dr. Imam on the phone. Here we go. I'm going to say a statement and then you're going to say myth or fact. It's going to be kind of rapid fire and uh, you give us maybe a few sentences on why it's a myth or a fact. Here we go. First statement, Dr. Imam. The majority of women diagnosed with ovarian cancer do have early symptoms prior to diagnosis? Um, myth, I believe. It's, again, it's very nonspecific. I mean, yes, I, it's a fact. It's nonspecific, yes. Sorry. All right, very well. Thank you. Nonspecific symptoms, correct. Thank you very much. And again, I know we talked a little bit about earlier that, uh, you yeah. know, uh, we want to make sure people. If they're sitting on symptoms for a long time, make sure you get seen. But let's make sure we get uh, seen, though, which is the most important thing. Here we go. Kim, uh, here we go. Statement. Myth or fact. Here's a statement. Multiple treatment modalities exist for ovarian cancer depending on type and grade. True. All right. Please explain. Well, just as I said earlier, so depending on, there's various types of ovarian cancer. Um, the biology is different. So it may be a pill, it may be IV chemotherapy, it may be, I mean, we even do very specialized surgery with intraperitoneal chemotherapy. Um, so there's a lot of options based on what the patient's biology of their tumor is. So that's a true fact. Thank you. Here we go. Here's a statement, Dr. Imam. Ovarian, oh, sorry, I want to say this one. I was looking at my list. Here, I like this one. A pap smear will detect ovarian cancer. Myth or fact? Please explain. Uh, pap smear is a, is a uh, cervical cancer screening tool. Uh, very rarely, it has to be like a really advanced stage ovarian cancer to see any of those cells uh, show up on a pap smear, but that's not really what the pap smear is, is, is uh, designed for. So a pap smear, we're screening you for cervical cancer or not ovarian cancer. All right, thank you. Uh, we were talking about this one. Here's the one for Kim. We were talking about this a little bit off air, but here we go. I'm going to read it anyways. Here's a statement. Using talcum powder when applied directly to the genital area can cause ovarian cancer. What's your thoughts? Um, true if you're the lawyer. Um, I mean, they are um, have been able to 
equate some correlation, but once again, um, how much and how, how much you talc you have to use and how you use the talc, I think, um, I don't. Yeah. I don't know that we know that you know what that means, you know. So just like we don't know how many cigarettes you have to smoke before you could get lung cancer, right? So, I, 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 um, I think you answered it answered very well. Yeah. Here we go. The Dr. Imam, here's a statement. Here's a statement. The CA125 blood tests and a transvaginal ultrasound are reliable screening tests for ovarian cancer. Please explain. Definitely not reliable. Uh, as we mentioned, the CA125 could be elevated uh, in so many different conditions. The most prominent one is endometriosis. And really, especially in younger women, it's very common for it to be elevated. Um, so we use them as uh, ancillary tools, but not a reliable screening tool for ovarian cancer. All right, thank you. Here we go. Here's a statement, Kim. I like this one. Uh, ovarian cysts always turn into ovarian cancer? Myth. Please explain. Well, a, a cyst is a benign, is a benign condition. Dr. Brown can probably speak to that a little bit better than I can, but ovarian cysts do not, it's not like a colon, all colon cancers start as a polyp. That's, we know that. Not all ovarian cancers start as a cyst. Thank you very much. Here we go, Dr. Iman, we'll do a couple more of these. Here it is. The human papillomavirus vaccine, the HPV vaccine, will help to reduce the risk of cervical cancer, but not ovarian cancer. That's a fact. All right. Yes, please. It's, it's, it is designed for, uh, you know, reduction in cervical cancer. It has no benefit to uh, reduce the ovarian cancer. All right. Thank you. The ovarian cancer is not really related to HPV. All right. Thank you. Let's do this one. We'll do this last one here for Kim. Women who have had a hysterectomy cannot get ovarian cancer. It's a myth, unless even even if women who have actually even had their ovaries out, if they don't take the fallopian tubes, depending on what, um, can still develop ovarian cancer. I've had patients even that have had total abdominal hysterectomies um, present with fluid in the abdomen, and it's ovarian. Yeah. Uh, so it comes Very back major. ovarian cancer. So that is not. Um, 100% effective way to prevent ovarian cancer. Thank you very much. So there you guys have it. We get myths versus facts again. So we got about five minutes left, and we've been having this great conversation about, again, it's hashtag cancer sucks. Again, we want you to share this show. That's the best thing you can do today. We're talking about ovarian cancer. So we got about five minutes left. So at the beginning, we talked about the chief complaint. Again, what are we doing to create awareness? How do we reduce, reduce burden? How do we create more opportunity and engagement in people with this diagnosis of ovarian cancer? Uh, that's the chief complaint. The assessment and plan, that's when somebody is uh, leaving their clinician's office and uh, they have a diagnosis and, most importantly, a follow-up. So we're going to bring this on home. So I'm going to start with Dr. Imam since you're on the phone. Uh, why don't you give us a few couple pointers, a few couple tips out there for people. You know, what should people take away from today's conversation about the importance of discussing this theme of ovarian cancer? Um, they should just know that it's... Uh you know, where it stands as far as um, gynecologic cancers and uh, in, in women in general, and then uh, what should they be on the lookout for. I, I really hope this serves as a, um, another reason why, they, why women should just continue doing their annual exams, continue the conversation with the, their practitioner, and just really pay attention to uh, 
anything that's unusual, anything that's different, and not just put it in the on the back burner, uh, and then to continue with all those preventative uh, measures that we've come up with, and hopefully, in a few year uh, in a few years time, that we will we will get to a point where we can detect ovarian cancer a lot earlier, or even tr try to prevent it as well. Thank you, Dr. Imam. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Hold the line. Don't hang up yet, but thank you very much. Kim, uh, why don't you give us a few take-home points for people out there to be successful or just things that they should know about this diagnosis of ovarian cancer. Why are we having this conversation? What should they take away from today's conversation? I think the biggest thing I will hope that people walk away with is not being afraid. I think a lot of times people still are afraid of cancer. Um, so they ignore symptoms or don't take symptoms seriously because they're afraid of what, what those symptoms may mean. So I hope that people walk away with this today um, knowing that there are treatment options, that worst case scenario this is cancer, that there are people out there that are going to help them, there are treatments out there that can help them, and they can still have good quality of life. Um, so my hope is that this allays some anxiety and fear for women out there um, regarding ovarian cancer. Thank you, Kim. It's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks. And kind of my final thoughts are this. You know, we're talking about this broader topic of hashtag cancer sucks, but again, today, ovarian cancer. You know, if you are concerned about it, you know, you know you have to know your body. If you're concerned about this diagnosis, it never hurts to just talk to your physician. you got to start someplace. You know your body the best. If something's wrong, if it's off, don't delay. I'd rather have people come and see me as a primary care physician and I can reassure them, or I'm sure Dr. Imam would have people want to see him and he can reassure them. If you have a strong family history of, of, of ovarian cancer, continue to ask your, ask your physician. The best thing you can do is to continue to invest in yourself. Again, as we know, as you have success with your health, you're going to have opportunities for more success in your life. Do not let this conversation stop today. I encourage you to share this show with people out there that need to hear this message of encouragement and engagement and opportunity. Us as clinicians, we're here for you. We work for you because we want you to have the best that all that life has to offer. So thank you to my guests. It's been a great show. Again, my good friend, Dr. Basil Imam. I want to read his credentials again. Check him out. Board certified obstetrician and gynecologist at Edward Medical Group, Edward Elmer's Health, www.eehealth.org. Check him out. He's excellent. My good friend, Kim Rohan, a board certified advanced nurse practitioner, Edward Hematology Oncology Group, Edward Elmer's Health, www.eehealth.org. Thank you, Kim. It's been a great uh, opportunity to talk with you today. And I tell you what, this has been just a great show. Hey, you guys have been listening and watching live on Facebook at intellectualradio.com. This episode is written by Mark D. Gomez, MD, and Tiffany E.R. Gomez. Producer is Tiffany E.R. Gomez. Music is by the wonderful Mr. Havis. Copyright 2019 by MDG Wellness, LLC. All rights reserved. Stay tuned for next week's show. I'm going to be wrapping up my Cancer Sucks series, talking about pancreatic cancer. We've got a lot to talk about that. Hey, if you like the show, again, share it. Remember, check me out on my website, www.drmarkgomez.com. Hey, let's get healthy together, y'all. Peace out. <laughs>